is the Agenda Podcast on the Blood Red Channel, taking a bite-sized look at some of the big Liverpool FC talking points. Hello everyone and welcome to a very special Blood Red podcast. Um, it's been a very busy 10 days or so for the Reds on the pitch with obviously United, Genk and Spurs. But what we want to talk about today is strictly off the pitch business. Uh, I'm Sean Bradbury on hosting GCs today and I have with me Echo senior reporter and court reporting veteran Johnny Humphreys who was down in London for the Echo, um, a loan signing from the news team for sport. We were delighted to get over the line for a few days to cover the high court case between the Reds and New Balance which for everyone who's followed it, which I'm sure is hundreds and thousands of Reds fans uh, certainly judging by how many people were reading what Johnny was writing for us on the Echo website uh, from all around the world it's been a fascinating case that's that's unfolded as I say in the, in the commercial division of the High Court down in London so myself and Johnny just going to have a quick look through it see how it all panned out um, what was a remarkable few days in court but um, Johnny welcome to the pod how's things have you recovered from your court sessions yeah 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 no thanks for having me on uh, yeah no it was uh, an intense case but it was it was interesting and uh, the way it panned out was uh, was a surprise to everyone, I think. That was, was absolutely, absolutely fascinating stuff. So we'll start with just how, how things got here. Obviously, not long after FSG took took over the Reds back in 2010, I think in 2011, the initial deal with Warrior, who obviously New Balance is the parent company of Warrior, was put in place. Uh, Warrior was, was the suppliers of the Reds kits for a few seasons and it moved on to New Balance. Uh, they signed a five-year deal in 2015, which is uh, the end of which was kind of the the key crux of this whole case and uh, what would happen after the end of that contract. So h- how did things get to this stage then, Johnny? Why why did it end up in the high court between Liverpool and New Balance, first of all? Well, essentially, I think uh, Liverpool have, have, have the, the expiry of the contract with New Balance has come at the perfect time for the club. Um, the success in the pitch and especially the last two seasons and and the feel-good factor under Klopp has meant that the club's probably the most marketable it's ever been. Yeah. And, and if you think that this, is, this level of success is the first time that the club's achieved anything like this in the social media age, um, so marketability is a completely different game than it was before that. Uh, and I think Liverpool have seen uh, the chance for, uh, for a fresh start um, and, and obviously we're not sure how... Who made the first approach? Whether it was Nike, or uh, whether it was some of the other big big names that we know had been in discussion with Liverpool, like Puma and Adidas. But essentially, I think Liverpool wanted to. I think the word they charged was supercharge the distribution yeah. of, of kits, and I think it was a case of striking while the iron's hot. So, unfortunately for Liverpool, they had to contend with the uh, with the matching clause in, in New Balance's contract. But I think it was just a case of Liverpool looking out for their own commercial interest, really. Um, there's uh, obviously no room for loyalty in the uh, in the business game, so I think it, I think that's how we got here. Really, um, New Balance obviously didn't want to lose one of their premier clients, mm. um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, the talks between the two broke down, and and it was uh, it, the only thing left to do was for the, to let the courts decide. Mm-hmm. So this this matching clause, as you mentioned, there was was the crux of it. Tell us about that. Like, what? Why did that come into play? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's quite a uh, a common occurrence in uh, in high level commercial uh, business partnerships. Um, essentially, it, it allows the um, it allows the partners to sort of plan ahead and know that the contract will run on for a, for a considerable amount of time. But um, Liverpool saw it as it was described in court as a commercial irritant. Yeah. Um, so essentially, it, it boiled down to New Balance had the chance to match any offer from a competitor coming in. Um, Nike obviously put their offer on the table. Liverpool believe that, that New Balance wouldn't be able to match it, and uh, New, ba- and New Balance disagreed. So 
that's how the how that's how the courts got involved. Um, the matching clause, uh, like I say, was was a I think it was described as a nuisance in court and, and something Liverpool were desperate to get out of. Mm. And we very quickly learned, obviously, there were, there were some suggestions ahead of the trial from the initial court papers, which you saw and you wrote about what exactly was on the table from Nike. So what what were the terms that were that were laid out in court as to what they were offering the Reds? Right, so essentially, Nike were offering £30 million a year in annual rights fees. And that was actually less than what New Balance are offering, uh, are currently um, paying Liverpool at the moment, uh, and that's £45 million. I think the crux of Liverpool came in... A, the distribution clause, which basically means that Nike had promised to sell Liverpool licensed products through a minimum of 6,000, the word that kept coming up in court was doors. <laughs> kept hearing about doors, and doors essentially means retail outlets, and, and that can be like a physical bricks and mortar store yeah. or um, a re- online retail, for example, or even a wholesaler. So Nike had promised 6,000 doors um, and a 20% royalty on all uh, net sales of Liverpool, Liverpool products. Um, under the matching clause, New Balance had to had to offer the same, so they would have been contract, contractually obliged to offer that. Um, and and Liverpool seemed to believe that that wasn't a genuine offer. Mm. Um, Nike, the thing was, Liverpool basically admitted that Nike's um, the, the terms of of Nike's offer were were aimed and designed at getting New Balance out of the picture. Yeah. So it wasn't just a case of what Nike could offer Liverpool. It was mo- it was a case of how Nike could get New Balance out of the contract and so Nike could step in. So this this term of 6,000 doors and, and the, uh, the the distribution clause was basically a way of, of trying to uh, free Liverpool up so that so they could move ahead with that partnership. Mm. And this was kind of the key discussion point, certainly on day one and into day two of the trial. Let, let's start at the start then. The, the, I don't know what it was like for you in court, but certainly following your extensive updates, which even after anyone who's listened to this part, I would, I would certainly recommend you go back and just have a look at what Johnny wrote in the in the live blog each day and obviously all the all the stories did on top of that. But it was just, it seemed to be like, it was almost like a football match itself. Like day one seemed to go one way and then it would swing the other. But when when New Balance's witnesses were up and all, all the kind of doors arguments played out on the first day, what, what did you make of those initial exchanges? Well, the, the first day in particular didn't seem to go very well for New Balance. Um I think one of the one of the, the um, slightly misleading things for us watching in court and for anyone following the updates was the, there was kind of two things that came out in court. One was obviously Liverpool thought that New Balance's offer, New Balance's um, future potential was not as good for them as Nike's. So that question got brought into it quite a lot, especially on day one when, when New Balance's figures were being analysed and, and New yeah. Balance's emails were being analysed and certain things came out which didn't look particularly good for them. But what it, we, it kind of became clear was that that wasn't really important to the question being decided in the court. The question being decided was whether New Balance had tabled a genuine offer mm. and whether they matched the specific terms of the contract. So whether, regardless of whether Nike would eventually be a better partner for Liverpool and, and offer them greater distribution or offer them uh, more money in the long run, that wasn't what, what, the, what the court was there to decide. So I think... And of course, when you listen to one highly paid, skillful, very persuasive barrister <laughs> present his arguments, you kind of get swayed his way. And then when yeah. the next guy steps up, you get swayed that way. So certainly on day one, um, it looked like New Balance had uh, had made some mistakes in, in tabling their renewal offer. And, and you did start to wonder whether they would be able to persuade the judge that their offer was genuine. Mm. But then certainly again, just from reading it, 
interested to see what it was like for you in court. It almost felt like it maybe swung the other way a little bit when when LFC's witness was cross examined and on on day two. Tell us about that. Well, yeah. Um, uh, so first up, Billy Hogan, um, the chief commercial officer for Liverpool, was uh, was brought to the witness stand, and again, when um, New Balance's barrister started to, to question his motives for. Uh, for the uh, certain things in the night contract and, and question whether he prejudged New Balance, he did start to wonder whether um, whether the question on the questions on day one were actually relevant to the outcome of the case. Yeah. Um, so, like I said before, the, the main crux of the trial, the main the main arguments that that took up most of the court time were actually won by New Balance. So, the the thing that actually decided the case was a kind of a bit of a minor player in in, in day one and two. Yeah, well, let's move on yeah. to that then. It was three three big names brought off the bench essentially: yeah. LeBron, Drake, and Serena Williams. And how 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 did you know these these superstars first get introduced in the case, and then why did they become so significant? Well, in the on day one, when both sides sort of gave a brief outline of their arguments, um, each barrister agreed that that they didn't see it as critical to the case. Mm. So the, these names essentially got brought in because Nike had promised to, in the in the marketing clause of their offer, had promised to uh, promote Liverpool products using athletes or influences of the calibre of Serena Williams, Drake and LeBron James. So that's how that got brought in. Um, each side kind of said, we'll, we'll, we'll focus most of our arguments on the distribution clause and this question of doors. And we'll, we'll address that briefly, but na- na- we don't see that as the sort of key deciding yeah. issue. Um, when it came to the closing arguments on on uh, day three, um, the a little exchange between Liverpool's barrister um, Guy Morpus QC uh, and the judge suggested that if that argument went in Liverpool's favour, it would be kind of a silver bullet that would kill the rest of the case off, mm. um, rather than getting into the question of good faith and whether New Balance had been genuine in their offer. This was kind of a more simple question of whether. That was uh, something that New Balance would be required to match, providing athletes of a certain calibre. Because if it was, they obviously hadn't named any athletes. Yeah. So they were, you, you could not say they the promised athletes of the calibre of LeBron James and etc. So it, it it was kind of a little uh, an issue of creeping significance that, uh, that when the, the final submissions were were aired at the end, you, you realised that that could be could be a key deciding thing mm. and then what was it like on that on that last day so that's we've covered like the first three days of it but then you went back down to London again on Friday for, mm. for the final hearing quite short and sweet when you were down yeah. there on Friday well, absolutely yeah um, the judge came out ready announced which uh, way it went and then the uh, written decision got handed out so we had to uh, it was a bit of a scramble at the back of the court <laughs> to get that to uh, rely on my uh, colleague at the, at the um, press association to get hold of me a copy for us but yeah, and then it was a case of scrambling through the uh, the document. Um, quickly realised that um, the judge didn't follow, didn't uh, buy Liverpool's argument about distribution, and, yeah. and, and he didn't believe that New Balance had acted in recklessly or in uh, bad faith, which I'm sure will be um, a relief to New Balance executives. So that wouldn't have uh, been a good look for them. But um, you turn to the uh, to the last part of his judgment, and he, uh, he basically said that it is possible to measure the marketability of an athlete. There's mm. lots of different ways of doing it. Um, it doesn't really matter which work method you use. The fact is, it was a measurable term, and that meant that it was something that New Balance were required to match. And he said New Balance had, had not... Uh, they could have offered athletes of the calibre of LeBron James, because let's not forget that Nike hadn't specifically said that LeBron James, Drake, and Serena Williams will be yeah. will be uh, promoting Liverpool products. They said athletes of that calibre will be promoting 
Liverpool products. So by not not um, specifying what calibre of athletes they could offer, New Balance had failed to offer the match the contracts and mm. failed to. So it was uh, there was a, a quite a lot of surprise going on both legal teams. Um, Liverpool's legal team seemed quite pleasantly surprised at the end that <laughs> that's what had decided it, and I don't think anyone expected it. No, absolutely. Um, and then one of the last points that was made in court was what was about the prospect of an appeal. Does that seem quite remote in terms of New Balance looking to appeal? Yeah, I believe so. Um, the the process is that the the losing side uh, has to ask the judge in that case for permission to appeal. Um, New Balance basically argued that there was um, potential grounds that the uh, the higher court, the court of appeal, could overturn the uh, the judgment. Um, There's there's some quite complex legal arguments about the uh, about about the vagueness of the the marketing clause, about whether it was a measurable, matchable term. Mm. Um, judge Tay didn't. Um, give that argument much credence. He immediately dismissed their their application to appeal. So the last remaining route for New Balance is a, a written um, uh, is to write to the the Court of Appeal directly, which the Court of Appeal is obviously above the High Court, uh, and uh, ask for permission to appeal. Um, that apparently is quite unlikely, uh, from mm. what I understand. Lawyers in the case suggested that because the judgment was a combination of facts and law. It's harder to argue that the judge made a uh, a legal error in his in his judgment. So, essentially, I don't think anyone is expecting an appeal to go ahead at, at this point. Mm. And it seems like uh, I think this is quite a time sensitive thing as well for, for both for whichever company will be producing Liverpool's kit. There's a, there's a process that needs to be gone through. The designs need to be finalised. Millions of of replica kits need to be uh, produced. So, I think the the window for an appeal is quite slim. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think that at the, as it stands Nike have won the day mm. and then obviously you've already told us about the terms of the Nike offer but there was plenty also said about what they've already got in place and how much they've spent you know it seems like they're quite far down the line of preparation for the new kits already well yes um, we heard that Nike spent uh, £6 million on uh, designing the kits and, and testing prototypes and uh, etc and I suppose in, in uh, for a company the size of Nike £6 million is, is a an investment it would make sense to make. Yeah. Um, I don't think the uh, that would that would have bankrupted them either way, but it just shows the commitment to to, um, to producing Liverpool's kits and, and being a partner with Liverpool. I think we also heard that Nike's uh, had gone to the supplies and and reserve capacity for to produce two point nine million units of uh, Liverpool replica kits. So I think. Now that the case is won, that that process will be underway, and uh, and, and I would expect production to start soon. Mm. Absolutely. Well, well, there you have it. A fascinating few days in court, which uh, we were lucky enough to have Johnny reporting on for us. And as I say, please go back and have a look at everything that uh, that he put together from London because it is it is fascinating stuff, and there's plenty of detail on there. And we'll of course be covering whatever comes next in terms of night kits when we start seeing designs and concept kits, and and they start rolling out in the factories ahead of the next season. So uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. And we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Agenda Podcast on the Blood Red Channel.